0: Welcome to Rocket Talk, the Tor.com podcast. Uh, this is Justin Landon, and I'm now week two into my Hamilton obsession, which I really wanted to hate and fell deeply in love with. Uh, I'll just say that we can look around at how lucky we are to be alive right now. Bear with me, folks. Uh, this is a lot for me to handle. But tonight isn't about Hamilton. It's about none other than Charlie Jane Anders. Charlie Jane is the author of All the Birds in the Sky, a new novel from Tor Books. She's the editor-in-chief of io9, where her nonfiction sallies forth on a regular basis. Her short fiction has appeared in countless places, including our very own tour.com, where the novelette Six Months, Three Days won a Hugo Award. Welcome, Charlie Jane.
1: Thank you. It's so good to be here.
0: Do you share an obsession with Hamilton, or are you not yet indoctrinated?
1: I haven't actually gotten into it yet. Um, I want to see it live. Supposedly there's a production of it, or it's coming, it's touring. Supposedly it's going to be in San Francisco in March, and I figure I will just like try to get tickets if I can. Uh, for when it actually is here, because I think that might be the best way to experience it. But, uh, I mean, when I was a little kid, I was obsessed with the duel, the the famous duel, you know, Hamilton and Burr. So, and everybody I talked to says that the musical is amazing, so I'm I'm dying to see it.
0: Yeah, I kind of fell down the rabbit hole. Uh, Amal El-Motar, like, convinced me to listen to the soundtrack, and huge mistake, because now I'm really into it. Of course, I immediately went and bought the uh the Ron Chernow uh biography, so now I'm reading that, and
1: oh, cool.
0: yeah, and I, of course, I was also inspired by the duel due to the milk commercial as a child, I think
1: Oh, I don't remember the milk commercial. I think I actually read a biography of Alexander Hamilton when I was a kid and and really felt like he was unfairly done by, especially since you know, then you find out that for the decades that followed various presidents and other leaders of the country tried to prevent us from having a central bank. It was this whole thing like um Jackson, president Jackson was, was violently opposed to having a central bank because he, I guess he thought it was, you know, un-American and it was just, you know, it was this huge thing. And, you know, now of course we take it for granted that we have one and that Alan Greenspan is like this godlike figure who, you know, for decades was controlling our destiny. And, you know, now I guess it's Janet Yellen. Uh, but, uh, Yeah. Anyway, it's, it's, it's weird to think that that was like this giant debate for so long.
0: I also think it's pretty amazing that a Broadway musical is bringing (laughs) Alexander Hamilton back to the forefront. I know
1: it's just, it's makes you feel like anything is possible. You know, things like that. When you see something like like that blowing up, it's just like anything could happen. That's the truth. I'm really excited to check it out. I, I, you know, it sounds amazing.
0: So, uh, I have to admit something to you. Uh, I, I cribbed, I stole something from you. Uh, oh, so in, okay. Like, wow. Yeah, kind of. Uh, so in uh, at Lone Star Con, when World Con was in San Antonio, I threw a party called Drinks with Authors, oh, wow. which was so right. blatantly a, a theft of the writers with drinks. And uh, I it was kind of like the kegger version of writers right. with drinks.
1: Yeah, well, no, no worries. I mean, you know,
0: was it a good party? It was an excellent party, yeah. Oh, we had, good. We had, well, we had,
1: that's the main thing. That's the most important thing.
0: But but I want to talk a little bit about writers with drinks. This has been like a huge deal for you, and, and really a significant sort of cultural touchstone in the Bay Area. It seems like so. Tell me about it. Like, where did you where did you get into it? How long have you been doing it? And I mean, yeah, I
1: mean, I'll I'll try to give you the cliff notes because it's kind of a long story. But basically, um, I've been doing writers with drinks since two thousand and one, and it's a, a local literary event here in San Francisco. It's usually five or six people performing or reading their work every every month and i try to have as many different genres as i can including literary fiction poetry science fiction fantasy erotica uh stand-up comedy uh just everything i can possibly smush together into one event and the more kind of different and the more contrast i can get uh happening in one event the happier i usually am and you know as time goes by sometimes i just have a month where i end up having a lot of one particular genre and it's just I'm, I'm no longer as obsessive compulsive about that as I used to be, but I still really love it when you have as many different genres as possible. And part of that is to kind of show how each genre is amazing in its own way. And, you know, you put a really great science fiction writer, you put someone like Kim Stanley Robinson or uh Terry Bisson or, you know, someone someone who's really like an amazing voice next to you know a great literary author next to like a a, a great non fiction writer, and you can kind of see how they're each doing something really amazing and they each have like an amazing use of language and an amazing presence um but you also start to see the similarities and the ways in which it's all kind of the same kind of storytelling and the same expression, and especially I love having stand up comedy and and poetry next to each other because they often do use a lot of the same devices. And I now have one friend who's actually gone from being a poet to being a stand-up comic. And it's sort of interesting to see how that works. It started out, I think, I mean, I was emceeing other people's events and I started just getting into, I enjoyed emceeing literary events. And then meanwhile, I felt like there were all these events that were just literary fiction or just science fiction and fantasy, or just actually there was one that was just erotica. And I was, felt like, You get sort of a monoculture. Everybody knows everybody else. There's this sort of, you know, it's just balkanization that happens. And I really love the thing where you bring together people who maybe they love this one literary author that they are dying to hear in person. And then you just kind of expose them to this science fiction author they've never even heard of or vice versa. And you get something really interesting happens. And sometimes, you know, you get like Amy Tan comes and does her thing. But then you have like a really like amazing science fiction author and an amazing erotica writer and just a hilarious comedian. And, you know, people freak out because they get to be exposed to something that they didn't know about.
0: Before I ask my next question, I just like every month, like you do this every month.
1: Yeah, it's like almost every month. Every once in a while, I take a month off. Uh You know, for a while, I was taking every July off because of Comic-Con, because Comic-Con is just this giant black hole of, of craziness. And it just kind of everything gets consumed in its vicinity. But um, usually it's once a month. Yeah. And yeah, I'm very impressed. Thanks. You know, it's, it's, in some ways it's gotten easier to organize as I go along because there's certain things that I'm just accustomed to doing. And then in other ways it just never gets easier. It's always like finding the right people, uh, you know, writing, I, I make up silly fake bios for each of the people. And that actually is kind of time consuming, but, but fun. Um, and you know, stuff like that, it, it never just becomes easy. And I think if it was, I'd be bored. The fact that it's always kind of a challenge is, is part of why I keep doing it.
0: For sure. Yeah. As a podcast host, like trying to just organize a schedule of oh, yeah. people is maddening and, and is should not go unappreciated by the people that enjoy your events. <laughs> like the scheduling of it, you know,
1: sometimes it's easier than others. Like, you know, sometimes. I have publicists just write to me and say, Hey, I've got an author coming to town and it's somebody amazing. Like that's how I got Marsha Clark. It's so funny. Cause now there's the whole OJ Simpson is kind of back or the OJ Simpson trial is back. And I'm like, Oh yeah, Martha, Marsha Clark. She came and read at my event. She was a total sweetie. Uh That's fantastic. That's awesome. Yeah. She's doing mystery novels now and she was adorable. I mean, she was, she was really nice. Is she really writing mystery novels? That's cool. Yeah. That's her new career.
0: So, Riffing a little bit on this concept of writers with drinks, sort of bringing together people of different different genres and different life experiences, and kind of throwing them together and seeing how they relate to one another is interesting. Considering the piece you wrote just the other day about some of the comments that Kazuo Ishiguro uh, made about sort of, I you mean, know, last year he made some comments that sort of seemed to draw some artificial boundaries, and then this year he's not drawing those boundaries or trying to undraw them. But there's like no doubt that within culture pop culture or whatever we do draw these really strange boundary lines without getting into too much about like I mean they do exist whether we want them to or not but like why do you think we decided to draw a line between like the more fantastic fiction and the non-fantastic fiction i, I don't feel like this was a thing a hundred years ago
1: i think it was probably a thing in different ways like i think that you had you know, popular authors like Dickens, maybe, or, or, you know, Melville, I guess Melville was sort of a popular author. He was never super popular, but you had more popular authors, and then you probably had authors who were more, <coughs> excuse me, sorry, rarefied, and who we probably don't even read today. Um I think that there have always been distinctions between high and low culture, and between different kinds of of culture. And I think that... um Part of it is just that people seek out what they want and what they enjoy. And people who want a particular kind of escapist narrative or a particular kind of fun, splashy paperback back in the 1940s or 50s were excited to know that it was, came under this one heading and that they could always find cool stories about rocket ships and, you know, aliens and stuff if they looked for this one type of book that was, you know, like I said, mostly paperbacks at the time. And I think that, uh, it was actually a huge boon and, and a huge boom in, in publishing, uh, to have that label and to have all these things that were attached to it. And I think that, uh, you know, that's still true. There are people who just really want one type, particular type of book. And, uh, the, the, the distinctions can be somewhat arbitrary. Like you can have urban fantasy, paranormal romance, uh, supernatural horror, all of which share some of the same elements, but there are crucial distinctions that, Make something one person's cup of tea versus someone else's cup of tea. And, you know, I think that there's a, there's a certain amount of, as creators, we get, uh, annoyed by these distinctions. But I think that consumers often find them useful in some ways. Like, you know, I had this conversation with a friend of mine years ago where I talked about how at the time I felt like kind of a hypocrite because I, felt as a writer like why do I have to why does my work have to be labeled why can't I just write fiction and it's either you know it's whatever it needs to be and I can decide whether there's fantastical elements or not and that doesn't change how it's received or or packaged or whatever and but at the same time as a as a music consumer at the time I was really heavily into uh R&B, funk, soul and, you know, a few other adjacent genres. And I would get very annoyed when I would go into a record store where they had just decided to shelve all of that stuff in the rock section, which some record stores did. I think Tower Records used to do that. In fact, there were certain record stores that just did not have a soul or R&B section and just put it all into rock. And that drove me nuts because I would have to paw through all these Aerosmith CDs that I didn't really like Aerosmith, you know, looking for Bootsy Collins or whatever. And that, that annoyed me. So I was like, as a consumer of music, I really appreciate rigid labels or at least somewhat rigid labels. And there were funk bands that were like, we just want to do rock and roll. We don't, or we want to go back and forth or we want to do whatever music we feel like and not feel like we have to adhere to this one type of music that people expect from us. But as a consumer, I was like, no, I want this one type of music. Right. So I think that, you know, I kind of could see it from both sides in a way.
0: But then there's also this negative connotation within literary culture that sort of has sprung up around science fiction and fantasy, which I think is, as I think you argued, is becoming, you know, slightly less prevalent. Uh, There's maybe some backtracking on, on the negative connotations around it. But for like decades, it was not that way that like if there had rocket ships, it didn't matter how well you wrote it or how smart it was. Nobody wanted to call it science fiction.
1: Right. You know, SF's no good. They bellow till we're dead. You know, well, that looks good. Then it's not SF or bellow till we're deaf. Sorry. I got it. I got it wrong. It's the, that famous rhyme by Kingsley Amos, who I was actually invoking earlier today as an example of literary fiction that I love. Um, you know, it's, I mean, I think that it is changing. I think it's changing relatively quickly. And I also think that, um, you know, I mean, a lot of literary fiction. I've written a lot of literary fiction in my time and I still write literary fiction um sometimes and some of my work kind of straddles the boundary um and a lot of literary fiction is also somewhat obscure it's it's not necessarily the case that writing literary fiction means that you have this giant audience i think that you know jonathan franzen has a giant audience just as jk rowling has a giant audience but uh there are also lots and lots of literary fiction authors that have never been heard of outside of literary circles and i think that it's it's much the same in some ways. It's just that if you're a big literary person and you have an MFA and you've been recognized and have gotten some prizes, maybe you can teach. And so there's that. Um, but I think that, uh, I think that it is changing. And I think that, you know, the, the more literary people sort of venture into the space of science fiction and, you know, fantastical speculative fabulist areas uh the less tenable it becomes after a while to claim that subject matter by itself renders something not literary or that there's some kind of value judgment attached to that
0: uh margaret atwood any day now is gonna is gonna admit she's just... i think
1: she's softening yeah i don't know i mean i think that she's i think that she's she's now been on stage with ursula leguin who's like kind of given her some of her viewpoints. And I think that nobody, nobody has a conversation with Ursula Le Guin and and walks away from it without having at least had their mind opened a little bit.
0: Speaking of, uh, kind of straddling things a little bit, uh, your new book, um, all the birds in the sky, which came out, uh, last week,
1: I think came out a couple of weeks ago. Yeah.
0: I was reading a lot of the, uh, blurbs and sort of pull quotes that people had done Um, from various reviews and the range of names that have been thrown out uh, both who have blurbed it or reviewed it or names that have been invoked that it is similar to would indicate that it seems to be straddling some boundaries perhaps hell michael shabin blurmed you which is amazing how was that i mean what was that like i mean when you heard that you were getting that blurb what were you
1: that was bizarre i mean i honestly for a few weeks i thought that someone had like faked his email address or or you know had like somehow done this as a prank because i mean i you know, I thought it was like an incredible long shot that we would get a board from him. And then we got that blur, but I was like, okay, this has to be a joke. Someone has been like intercepting my emails and has done this to kind of, you know, screw with me or something. I was just, I couldn't believe that that was real for like basically like a month. I think I was like convinced that it was going to be that the wall was get, the rug was going to be pulled out any minute. Um Yeah. I mean, it's been, the reception has been really just like super gratifying and you know, it's, it's, kind of an odd book in a lot of ways there are some decisions i made in there that uh you either go with them or you don't and i think that uh you know i've been really just gratified with people's willingness to go with it and kind of uh get carried along on on the the weird ride i'm taking people on
0: yeah uh i mean terry pratchett kurt vonnegut diana wynne jones joe walton douglas copeland i mean you know just a few of the names that i saw compared uh that we're comparing it to which is which i think indicates that you're uh you're sitting in an interesting sort of positioning, uh, in there between sort of this clever and, and quirky book, but also deeply genre. Yeah.
1: I mean, you know, yeah, it's, it's been really, really, really thrilling. And, um, I mean, like I said, I have written a lot of literary fiction over the years. Um, I, I wrote a ton, uh, in, in sort of the 2000s and, and did get into some literary magazines. Um, and, you know, I think that, I, some of what I emerged with—I mean, I'm really glad that I wrote a lot of literary fiction because I think it—it it did help me to sort of um, pick apart some of the elements of storytelling that are kind of divorced from, you know, the in, the actual incidents of the story, like the kind of mm-hmm. the moments in between the incidents, if that makes any sense. And I think that uh, what I realized over time was that the moments in between things that happen are, are often the moments that, that are the most important. That's
0: interesting. Uh, a lot of, as I've kind of, I mean, I've read you know various bits of your work over the years and it seems, it seems like a lot of the things that you have written, including all the birds in the sky have this concept of time travel comes up a lot. It seems like, or, or, or at least concerned with time, both the future and the past and, you know, six months and three days is about seeing into the future or remembering the future. And then you've also sort of got this, you know, two second time machine in All the Birds in the Sky. I think, if I'm not mistaken, uh, the, uh, cartography of sudden death, doesn't that have a time travel element as well?
1: That's all about time travel. Yeah. That's actually a world that I'm hoping to return to soon. I'm working on a couple of stories in that world right now. And yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I'm obviously, I'm a huge fan of things like Doctor Who and, you know, Back to the Future. And so I love time travel as a, as a device. But also, I mean, I'm sort of obsessed with, our relationship to time in, in the real world and, um, the way in which we sort of process, you know, our experiences and, and turn them into memories or, or the way we think about what's going to happen. And I think our relationship to time as, as people is something that is kind of, you know, it's something that I'm always trying to make sense of. I, I actually wrote in that kind of noodly essay that you mentioned about Ishiguro, which, you know, I kind of turned it in the end into a thing about Time and memory, and like I had this thing that I was trying to work out about how kind of our minds are a machine for turning uh, moments into experiences. And I guess what I mean by that is that we, you're, you're something is happening to you in the moment, and then afterwards, your mind kind of processes it into something that happened, and you know turns it into an anecdote or turns it into a memory. And the 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 process by which the present becomes the past and is filtered through our consciousness. And how the things that happened to you in the past, even though in some senses they happened to somebody completely different because you're no longer the same person, they still happen to you because there's some sense of continuity, however illusory or, or kind of tangential. And so I'm sort of fascinated by all that sort of thing. And in fact, Six Months, Three Days is is a story that is definitely about memory and about people constructing the past and the future and how you how you try to make sense of both of those things
0: those topics always like hit me really hard. Like that notion of, of, of what we, um, of what we think we know about ourselves isn't, uh, and and what we think we remember and how that reflects. It reminds me a ton of the Ted Chang story. Um,
1: The truth of fact, the truth of, it's amazing.
0: I had a chance to interview Ted at a, at a convention a couple of years ago. And I, so I read that story before the interview and I got like visibly emotional. So (laughs) yeah, I love that stuff. So I think I guess your last novel that you published was ten years ago?
1: Actually, yeah, ten years ago, yeah. A little bit more, like eleven. Um yeah, and there were other novels in in between that just never quite got published.
0: But in between then you've published like a hundred short stories,
1: right? I actually haven't counted how many short stories I've published. I mean, there was there's I think there's more than a hundred, but I have no idea how many. I I think I um At one point I had a a count and I can't even remember what it was, but I need to sit down and just go through again and figure out.
0: I feel like after you're in the century club, like you're good. You can just, you can just stop (laughs) counting.
1: Yeah. And a lot of them are total garbage anyway. So (laughs) it's probably just, you know, I should only count the ones that are any good, which is probably like, you know, a handful. I don't know. That's being generous to myself, but I don't know.
0: I think you could find find people. I, I think you could find enough that would uh, that would be a little more than a handful. But I mean, what did you what did you feel? What, did, what was the last ten years like for you? I mean, as you as you were working on all this short fiction, and you had some some novels that I guess you've trunked at this point. Do you feel like it was sort of like you were reapprenticing the in the craft, or was it just a, a just kind of a, a put your head down and, and grind kind of thing?
1: You know, it's been it's been the whole time. It's been kind of a slow grind and just trying to like figure out how to write better stories and create better characters and come up with characters and their relationships that don't feel so tissue papery and that was like a huge thing for me because you know I have stories that even from like 5 years ago that I thought were like brilliant back then and now I look at them and I'm like ah it's a little bit flimsy kind of um and you know it it was it's been an interesting decade because you know really like 10 years ago I was Just kind of, I mean, my, my first novel had come out and I was just kind of hitting my stride with, with some of my short fiction. Um, and, you know, I had like two other novels that I was working on that I had really high hopes for. And then, you know, in 2007, sometime I started getting involved in talks about starting what became IO9. And then there was like a few years when I was still just like grinding really hard on my fiction and just every day sweating over my fiction, but I would have conversations with people occasionally where they'd be like, oh, you write fiction? And that was kind of interesting because before I started doing io9, pretty much everybody I knew knew me as a fiction writer first and foremost. And then maybe they were aware that I'd done some journalism. But after I started doing io9, it flipped completely. And for like three or four years, people would just have – would have no idea that I wrote fiction like. There were a lot of people who only knew me through io9 and other journalism, and, you know, the notion that I wrote fiction was sort of like, oh, that's interesting. Um, And then, you know, I guess 2011 was probably when I started getting published by Tor.com, um, host of this lovely podcast. And then it changed again, and it was suddenly like, oh, you know, there were people who knew my fiction and also knew me through io9 and there also started to be people again who only knew me through my fiction which was in, you know in some ways kind of gratifying yeah i can
0: imagine that would be a little frustrating to be a fiction writer and then uh not really i, I don't know to have that sort of minimized in favor of this non-fiction work that you're working on but
1: i mean i was always super proud of io9 I'm, I'm, i remain ins- insanely proud of io9 and everything that we've done but it was just like fiction writer was like so central to my identity for so long that it was kind of funny that for a few years there, you know, probably only three or four years, I guess, um, people just were completely unaware of it and, you know, it was fine. And, um, I, I, I still had that world that I would belong to. I mean, it's not that the people, it's not as though the people who knew about my fiction forgot about it or were like, had their memories erased. It was just that, there was this larger world that had no idea about it. Cameron
0: Hurley uh, talks about this frequently. Is this notion of lots of fiction writers can't do nonfiction because it's not oh. it's not something that they stretch very often. It's it's a it's a a different kind of writing, and it's not a a kind of writing that they do often enough to be very good at it. Do you find that transition easy, or do you think it's a different skill, or is it?
1: Uh, I think that writing nonfiction is definitely a skill. It's like anything, any kind of writing is a skill. And I think that, um, it's something that you can learn for sure. Um, I mean, I learned, um, uh, journalism a long time ago in actually working for newspapers back in the late nineties. And so I kind of have that grounding. Um, and, you know, I worried about when I started working at IO9, whether just the daily blogging would start to interfere with my fiction writing or whether it would bleed over or my fiction would start to just seem like weird blog entries with fictional characters in them or, which actually could be kind of interesting now that I think about it um, or whether it would just, you know, one way or the other, it would have a harmful effect. Um, but actually it seems like they use two different, ver- two different parts of my brain. They don't feel like the same thing at all. And it doesn't feel like doing one makes it harder for me to do the other. Um, And in fact, I I feel like I've gotten really lucky with O nine because part of what I've gotten paid to do for the last like eight years is um, just geek out about storytelling and obsess about like what works and what doesn't work. And, you know, both in writing criticism, but also just in obsessing about different stories and different moments that people love or don't love. You know, I've, I've kind of been able to spend a lot of time geeking out with, uh, with smart people. Like a lot of the readers who are the most vocal on IO9 are some of the smartest people I know. Like the commenters on that site are just incredible. And, um, they have just such interesting opinions about stuff. And you kind of get to know how people bond with characters and what makes them invest in a story. And stuff like that is actually, I think it's really interesting to spend a lot of time delving into. So I've been really lucky. So you don't feel
0: like the uh, the huge nonfiction word count that you were churning out on a daily or weekly basis, it, it didn't eat up your words?
1: No. And, you know, all practice is good, really. I mean, you know, the more you produce writing of any kind, the more your brain just is, I don't know, primed, I guess. Um, there's that idea that you have to produce a million words of fiction in order to be any good at it. And I, I think at this point, I've probably produced at least a couple million. But um, I think that, every kind of writing feeds into it as well, even if it doesn't necessarily count towards the million words or whatever.
0: Uh, You mentioned that you started io9 in in 2007, and I kind of started blogging in maybe 2011. I was kind of late to the blogging game, it feels like. But... Uh, but in, since, since 2007, it, it feels like things have changed tremendously. Yeah. Uh, sort of in the online space. And and now you're taking a, a book out into this online space. And so you're kind of experiencing it from a, a different angle, maybe a little bit. But like, how have you seen things change over the last eight, eight years?
1: That's so hard to say. I mean, it's really subjective. Um, I mean, I think that obviously... In terms of online media, there have been a lot of changes and we're kind of in the middle of it right now. It's really hard to see how it's going to shake out. Obviously, social media has become a lot more important. It's it's kind of become much more of the filter through which a lot of people interact with the Internet. I mean, eight years ago, I don't think smartphones were as important in how people consume online content as they are now. I think that that's been a huge transformation. And I think that, um, things have become a lot more social and that's mostly a good thing, but in some ways it makes it harder to break out of the echo chamber. I think, I think that there are a lot of different echo chambers that are going on and, you know, social media is definitely an enabler of that.
0: But do you think you've had to get a little more extreme in your headline writing <laughs> as a result of the uh, social media change? No,
1: I think if anything, I mean, I, I mean, I always try to write enter- headlines that are entertaining and fun and that, you know, are kind of, interesting, exciting headlines. That's been like the goal since day one. I think if anything, what social media does with headlines is that you know that if you write a headline that's too fun or too extreme or whatever, you're going to get some people on Twitter who are going to scream that you're being – that it's clickbait or that you're being kind of unsavory or whatever. And so if anything, you kind of always have that in the back of your mind that like, okay, if I go with the headline that I think is hilarious and, and fun – at least a few people on Twitter are going to scream about it. And I just have to know that that's going to happen. Tolerable risk. Yeah. I mean, it depends on the headline. It depends on, you know, it just depends on the situation. So I think that there's actually, if anything, a little bit of like more, you know, yeah, there's a little bit more, uh, just a slight hesitation before you write Mm -hmm. like the headline that you would normally write. That's like the one that you find personally most amusing or whatever. (laughs) I don't know.
0: I mean, I'm a huge fan of, like puns and headlines and stuff. So I'm, I'm like no good judge. I I love terrible wacky headlines, but
1: yeah, I mean, I, I like, I like a little bit of playful hyperbole. I I don't mind saying this is the worst thing in the world, or this is the best thing in the world. And like, you know, I don't think anybody's going to look at that and think, well, but there's a lot of things in the world. Are you sure that this is absolutely the best thing in the world? Have you actually, like, evaluated every single thing and made sure that this is the best? I mean, most people understand that that's hyperbole. But, you know, you, with hyperbole, there's going to be the risk that some people are going to see it as just um, overkill or whatever.
0: Well, actually <laughs> – dot, dot, dot.
1: <laughs> well, actually – the best thing in the world is a Faberge egg that you open it up and it's got like a million tiny elef- elephants inside of it. And those elephants like spread out and spell the 9,000 names of God or whatever.
0: Now, the echo chamber thing is fascinating because, you know, as somebody in sort of this podcast, you know, Twitterverse, social media world, like it's immensely frustrating. And I can't imagine what it's like for publicists and people who are taking their books out right, you know, in this environment because – you'll see like this huge buzz go out in the social media world. And you're like, well, what does that mean? You know, uh, right. How far is it actually reaching? And is, is online buzz actually turning into sales or into,
1: right. You know,
0: bookstore buzz.
1: One of the conundrums of the internet is that there's a lot of noise and some of it is just noise. Like people will uh, retweet something a hundred billion times without actually ever Having read the thing that they're retweeting, like that's that's. I mean, I do that too. I'm not saying that other people that this is evidence that other people are 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 terrible or whatever. I will I'll see someone tweet something and it's a link to something and they'll be like, this proves blah 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 blah, and it proves something that I agree with, so I, I retweet it and then I never bother to click the link and actually read the thing that, um. And so I assume that that also means that people retweet a lot of things about books without actually ever going and buying the book, um, but I think that you know, basically in this day and age, more than ever, you have to be a little bit shameless in promoting a book. Um, and that's just how it is. You have to kind of beat the drum for your own book because nobody else will do that. And um, people will get sick of you doing it. People will get annoyed at you for doing it. And I always cringe a little bit when I'm like, okay, I've already tweeted about my book three times today, but I'm going to do it one more time because there's people who didn't see those earlier tweets. And I want, you know, every, if there's, any chance that I can just reach the audience that doesn't even know my book exists yet. I need to do that because the saddest thing in the world is when you run into someone, you know, in real life or someone who you kind of know through online, like six months after your book came out and they're like, Oh, you had a book come out and you're like, Dole. Yeah, like, like it's one thing if they knew you had a book out and they just didn't care enough to buy it. But if they just didn't even know that it existed, even though they're your friend and they follow you on Twitter and maybe they like, you know, see you occasionally in real life, but they just it somehow pass them by. That's, that's the kind of nightmare scenario. And that's why you have to be a little bit relentless. And, you know, in this day and age, it's a truism, but publishers are not going to strike up the brass band in the way that they might have in the past. I mean, I've been incredibly lucky with Tor. Tor has been just like relentless in, in helping to promote the book and Putting resources into it, and they've been just incredible. But I still feel like it's all—it's on me to just kind of beating the drum for my own book.
0: I think you have the right—the right plan of attack. Fingers crossed. Hopefully, people who listen to this get a little bit better idea of who Charlie Jane Anders is. And we didn't talk too much about the plot of the book, but I think that's good—people to, to go out there and read it. It's—it's it's a fantastic work.
1: Oh, thanks. Right,
0: we're, we're right in the midst of award season for 2016, but I imagine this time next year we'll be talking about uh, all the birds in the sky uh. again.
1: I have no idea. I mean, it came out in January, which probably means that people will all think it just came out the year before, but we'll see. I don't know. It's all, I'm just glad people are talking about it now, to be honest. I know you have another
0: book in your contract. Is it related to yeah. this? Is it a sequel?
1: Yeah, it's not a sequel. It's actually, um I kind of decided that, the second book – because I, I did sign a two-book deal with Tor, and I kind of decided that the second book should be as different from the first as I could possibly make it, partly because you just don't want to get pigeonholed and partly because I felt like there were certain aspects of my style that I, I pushed as far as I could push them in, in All the Birds in the Sky, and it's really good to try and go in a different direction so that you – to just keep growing as a as a writer – um and also i figured i mean i was i was planning this second book like a year and a half ago and at the time i was like well you know if all the birds in the sky totally tanks completely it would be good if i had another book coming that i could be like this is a completely different book and you should try this one and if it you know i was like if it does well it's good to show that i'm not a one-trick pony so either way i felt like it was a better bet to kind of stake out some different territory
0: as a jaded blogger of series novels thank you just
1: yeah i'm tired I mean,
0: of series so
1: you know i mean the cautionary tale i always repeat to people is is the tale of, of david drake who's in a fantastic author and david drake was the military sf guy in the i guess 80s and 90s um he did the hammer slammers books he did a bunch of other great military science fiction books that i love and then you know to hear him tell it at some point in the late 90s there was like just a collapse in military science fiction for a while. The bottom just dropped out of it for a few years, and publishers just were not interested in military science fiction anymore. And uh, again, I'm quoting David here, but basically, his publisher was like, we don't want any more military SF books, uh, and we don't think you can do anything else, because that's all we've ever seen from you. And luckily for David Drake, he had published one epic fantasy novel in 1975. And so he was able to point to that and be like, look, I'm an epic fantasy author. This is, you know, just who I always, this is just who I am. And so publishers were, some publisher, I forget who was, was like, okay, that sure. You've written one epic fantasy novel. You could do another one. And so he was able to pivot and do something else. Whenever, since I heard that story years ago, I've always felt like it's better not to get known for just one thing. It's better to kind of have for better for career longevity that you have kind of more tricks up your sleeve.
0: Especially as you're starting your career, it's like, uh, you never know which is going to be the one that really resonates with people and if your first six books are all in one series you know you're kind of limiting yourself in that regard
1: yeah and i think that again like neil gaiman i saw him at uh, when he was guest of honor at uh, the world con in montreal i think it was in 2008 or 2009 and he was doing a q and a and he said you know i i want a neil gaiman book to be like you know, I'm like a chef who, like, one day I'm like, here's some pizza. And then the next day, like, oh, I made you some sushi. And just like, he wants people to expect each one of his books to be completely different. And I think Chinese Mieville is the same way. Um, you know, Ursula Le Guin has a little bit of that. Like, if you look at the Earthsea books and, uh, you know, some of the Hainish cycle, I think it is, they don't feel like they're necessarily the same, oh, cut from the same cloth.
0: Well, I'm excited. When, when's that, you yeah, have it, has that been announced yet or title or anything? Not yet.
1: No, nothing's been announced. In fact, um, it's I'm just keeping it super vague. I think that my goal is to uh, get you know a, a good draft of it that I can show to tour like later this year. So fingers crossed. I have like a really terrible draft of it right now. That's okay. We have faith. <laughs> fingers crossed. God.
0: Well, this has been fun. Uh, I r- I really appreciate you coming on. And uh, again, I'll urge everybody else to get out there and, and pick up all the birds in the sky um i i really enjoyed it Yay, and everybody thanks. i've talked to all my all my friends in the uh the blogosphere are are raving as well thanks so. god
1: for the blogosphere and yeah thanks so much for reading it and for having me on your show this has been super super fun
0: this has been rocket talk